Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 171, The Welsh Cast, part 7. This show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, such as extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Alex, Shannon, and Patrick for contributing already. When we last left off, we were talking about how we have a limited understanding of this area of history due to a combination of scarce resources and the Victorians building a mythology of Englishness. We also covered the early Middle Ages and the turn that was occurring in southern Britain in the 6th century, where the Anglo-Saxons, especially the West Saxons, had rebounded from those early losses, and now they were defeating the Britons in battle and steadily advancing towards the Severn. Life for the Britons of the South was looking dire. The kings that Gildas complained about were active, and were not doing very well. The Britons were losing territory in the east, and even when their kings got together to take part in a joint attack, they were still losing. And sometimes, they were even losing their lives. And it wasn't just in the south. Even in the Midlands, things weren't going very well. The border people, or as they would have called themselves, the Mercians, were also looking to expand their territory. And the Mercians are a fascinating and strange group of people, because in many ways, they do appear to have been a bit British, at least a little bit. They don't reflect the culture and values that we see elsewhere in Anglo-Saxon lands. We know that Mercia spoke the Anglo-Saxon tongue, so the temptation would be to categorize them as an Anglo-Saxon kingdom. However, the more that modern scholars look at the history of Mercia, the more complicated and muddy that picture becomes. So actually, they're a great place for me to explain something that sometimes gets confused in how we talk about history, and a problem that I'm actually perpetuating by the way that I've separated the series. A common mistake that history enthusiasts and some historians make is that modern concepts of ethnicity can be applied to the past. That isn't to say that cultural and ethnic groups never occurred in the past. They did. But the ideas of ethnicity that we have now, and the ones that we had in the past, might have some things in common, but they are definitely not the same thing. You might remember how Gildas spoke of the Britons as a group in the mid-6th century. But the thing is that he was mostly concerned with corruption and Christian kings failing to be properly righteous and he saw the pagan Anglo-Saxons not as an ethnic force fighting for control of Britain, but rather the harsh judgment of God himself. In the 8th century, we saw Bede writing about the English as a group. We also saw in later documents how the Welsh were a separate legal class. And of course, we spoke about in earlier episodes how there appears to have been an apartheid system against the Britons in the Anglo-Saxon territories. So there do appear to be some sorts of groups. But what were the boundaries of those groups? When we look into that, we see that they didn't have the same views regarding the separation between the English, Scottish, and Welsh that we might have today. The Anglo-Saxon kingdom saw the Britons as Walesk, which was simply their word for foreigner. Cheeky. And unfortunately, we continue to use that word today as Welsh. And the Britons often referred to the Anglo-Saxons broadly as Saxons or pagans. So the temptation is to say, well, clearly there are ethnic boundaries similar to what we know today, and that would have guided how things played out. 
Consequently, it's no surprise to me that we tend to imagine this period as a struggle between the Scottish and Welsh versus the English, and that the battle was fought on a clear ethnic level. However, the truth is so much more muddy than that, and what we don't know is how these Britons and Anglo-Saxons saw themselves. We don't have any diaries, but from the record, it doesn't appear that either one saw themselves as a single unified group. Hell, I doubt that the 8th century Northumbrians would even agree that they were Northumbrians. They'd probably insist that they were Deiran or Bernician. This was a deeply fractured time. And to complicate matters even farther, we don't know where the Welsh stopped and the Anglo-Saxons started. When we look at any kingdom in Britain during this period, we find blends of cultures and lineages. Hell, most Anglo-Saxon graves contained bodies that were at least partially British. These lines were not as clear as we imagine. Not only that, but ethnic backgrounds don't appear to guide inter-kingdom conflicts as much as we might imagine. Mercia is a great example of how archaic the ethnic view on conflict is, because even though they were not quite Anglo-Saxon and not quite British, when we look at their history, the Mercians weren't always friendly with their British neighbors, nor their Anglo-Saxon neighbors, despite sharing things in common with both. Instead, we see them getting into conflicts with both. Something important to note is that those conflicts were almost certainly due to economics, rather than ethnicity. There might be some theological motives to some of the fights, but primarily these fights appear to have been political, rather than ethnic in nature. And when it came to politics, well, your background doesn't appear to have been all that important. Alliances were formed and wars were fought in all directions, so ethnicity couldn't have been the deciding factor in forging and breaking these alliances. However, for our purposes, it is easiest to separate things in terms of our modern understanding of ethnicities, which is why we have a Welsh caste, Scott caste, and so on. And I will continue to use those broad groupings because it does make it a lot easier to explain the cultural development of the island. I just want to make it clear that this is done for the sake of communication, but you shouldn't assume that this is how the people saw themselves back then. The British kingdoms almost certainly did not see themselves as part of anything like Wales, and the Anglo-Saxons didn't see themselves as part of anything that we would think of as England today. But that being said, there definitely was no love lost between the two broad cultural groups that we've been talking about. We see evidence in the record of Brits seeing the spread of pagan communities and retreating west in response. From religious sources, we read of how the Britons associated the Anglo-Saxon tongue with the Germanic religion and pagan gods. And that gives the impression that the sticking point wasn't ethnicity, but rather it was religion. However, we need to remember who was writing those records. Religious men who, of course, would be quite concerned with who was worshipping which gods. So the hostility between British holy men and the Germanic people of the East does appear to have had a religious element to it. In fact, they refused to even teach the Anglo-Saxons about Christianity, which seems like it was probably their ultimate strike back. The pagans could take their lands, and they could savor that victory. In hell. But when we look at the religious records, we need to be careful not to assume that that was how all levels of society saw the divide. Of course, religious people would see it in a religious way. 
But the kings, as we will see going forward, appear to have seen it largely on a political level. Land acquisition, defending territory, placing family members in powerful positions, that sort of thing. Meanwhile, it's entirely likely that the lower orders saw things on a more tribal level. Us versus them. We don't like outsiders. But something to remember, and something that we talked about in earlier episodes, is that this was a period of xenophobia. And in this era, an outsider could be someone who was just from two villages down. It didn't necessarily need to be someone from a British kingdom. These conflicts appear to have occurred for a whole variety of reasons. A lot of times, they're political. Occasionally, they're theological. Sometimes, they might be over pure xenophobia or blood feuds. But the idea of an ethnic divide, the idea that there's Englishness and it's pitted against Britishness, well, that's a lot harder for us to find evidence for. I know that it is often portrayed as such, and I know why. It's easier to tell the story in that way. But when we look at the fights and alliances that follow, the weight that we place on ethnicity appears to be more of a reflection of our views rather than of their culture at the time. It's super tempting as a podcaster to say, the Anglo-Saxon fight for Britain made serious gains after this or that battle. And I'm pretty sure that I've said things that are similar to that, because from our perspective over a thousand years later, it kind of looks that way. But if we look at things from their point of view, and look at the actions that they were taking, we aren't seeing a hundred or two hundred year war with the express purpose of beating an ethnic group. We're seeing something infinitely more complex. And we do it a disservice when we simplify it down to an easy-to-summarize ethnic conflict. But there was a conflict in Britain, and one that was occurring on a massive scale. Borders were being worked out, they were being fought over, pushed back, and redrawn. From the perspective of the central and western Britons of the 6th century, it probably looked like the community that was growing in the Midlands, the New Kingdom of Mercia, was expanding at an uncomfortably quick pace that placed it a bit too close to the old capital of Poes, at Viriconium, modern-day Roxeter in Shropshire. Now, Viriconium had been the capital of Poes since the Roman days. Back then, it was the capital of the old kingdom of the Cornovii, a Celtic kingdom that predated Caesar. The Brits had a history there. A lot of history. When the 14th Legion went on a rampage in their efforts to subdue Wales, they demonstrated their power by establishing a fortress on that site. Later, the 20th Legion moved in and took over the post, again with the intent of keeping the Britons under the Roman thumb. But eventually, as was the way with Roman fortresses, the Legion left and the building was abandoned. The Britons had been waiting, and as far as we can tell from the archaeological evidence, they didn't miss a beat and returned to their land, establishing a community there. It became an important aspect of life in central Britain. And Viriconium was resilient. When Rome pulled out, the area around it went through a series of political upheavals. Kingdoms divided, territory was moved from one kingdom to another. But one thing remained constant. Viriconium remained important. It remained wealthy. And it remained in British hands. But the pagan Mercians were getting ever closer. The British kingdom of the Magonseta weren't going to be able to slow them down forever. 
And so, in the early 6th century, we see the Britons abandoning their villas and estates in Viraconium. And eventually, they entirely abandoned the territory, moving their capital to Penguern, which we think was probably Shrewsbury, or the birth. Both territories would have been more defensible than old Viraconium. The Britons were abandoning wealthy and developed lands, not for financial reasons, but for military ones. The culture of the island was changing, and the Britons were doing what they had to in order to adapt. And in this case, it meant leaving their own lands. But while we've been hearing about the losses in the south, and the retreat in the Midlands, that doesn't mean that the Brythonic kingdoms were always on the defensive. The northern Brythonic kingdoms and the kingdoms of northern Wales were actually on the advance. This is a fact that will make my family quite happy, since we're from North Wales, and those retreating Southerners like to claim that North Wales isn't real Wales. So, in 577, King Urien of Regid from the modern area of Cumbria attacked Lindisfarne, what he probably called Innes Megawith, and he besieged King Theodric of Bernicia, son of Ida. For this campaign, King Urien was joined by three other British kings. Cooperation between neighboring kingdoms was difficult to say the least, and cooperation between four different kingdoms was almost unheard of. Their interests didn't always align, and while they might have had the vague middle ground of a shared religion and a general dislike of the pagans of the East, they were still clear rivals. Grudges are notoriously hard to stamp out, and while our sources of this period are limited, we can be sure that these four kingdoms had reasons to dislike each other that went back generations. They might have started in petty ways, or maybe they were full-blown blood feuds. Whatever the case, simply because we now refer to them under the umbrella of Britons doesn't mean that they saw themselves as a single group. Yet we still had four kingdoms putting all that aside and gathering together to stick it to the Sons of Ida. King Urien's attack on Bernicia was clearly a massive undertaking. Not only massive, it actually worked, and the British kingdoms suddenly found themselves in control of a major Anglo-Saxon kingdom in the north. King Theodric had been forced to retreat all the way to the island of Lindisfarne on his eastern border. He had run as far as he possibly could from the advancing Britons, and unless he could hitch a ride with a friendly dolphin, he had no avenue of escape. How many times have we seen the Northumbrian armies on the rampage? How many times had the Britons been on the losing end? But here they were in the 6th century, bottled up in Lindisfarne, on the verge of being quite literally driven into the sea. The Britons had a historic victory in their grasp. But those old rivalries could only be put to bed for so long. And apparently, the siege of Lindisfarne lasted a bit too long for the British multi-kingdom army. Because we're told that Morkant, who was almost certainly a prince of the Vododini, which was a neighbor of Urien's kingdom of Regid, got jealous at the level of glory that Urien was gaining through this victory. Urien was already pretty close to being a legend at this point. But now, with his impending victory over Bernicia, he would be like King David on steroids, and the kingdom of Regid would also acquire a tremendous amount of power if it could annex Bernicia. You can imagine that that would be a problem for their neighbors, the Vododini, who appear to have had a bit of a fraught relationship with Regid. 
And so, Prince Morkant assassinated Urien before the siege could be completed. And we have the rare instance where a son of Ida escaped rather than dying an early death. King Theodric and the entire line of Ida could have been ousted from power, and Bernicia could have been reestablished as a British kingdom had it not been for poor diplomacy and even worse self-control. This whole thing is staggering to comprehend. Was it Morkant's plan all along to undercut Urien of Regid, or did he happily join the attack only to get cold feet at the last minute? Was the hope to weaken Regid, but still complete the siege and claim the glory for himself? If so, who dropped him as a child because that is a ridiculous idea that was never going to work? Honestly, I have no idea what his plan was, and it's just amazing. But once again, we have a good example of how this wasn't a period of Britain versus Anglo-Saxon. It was a great deal messier than that. It was starting to become clear that, much like Gildas had complained about, the issue for the Britons wasn't their strength of arms. It was their greedy and short-sighted nobility, who were concerned with only their immediate desires. A bit later, in 595, the Vododini, that same British kingdom in the north, attacked Deira. We spoke about this a bit in the Scott cast, and also in the main cast, but what happened was King Minnethog Mauenfauer of the Vododini spent a year planning this campaign. It was a major military endeavor, and it's thought that the goal was to take the old Roman fort of Cataric. If the Vododini could prevail, it would go a long way towards pushing the Germanic kingdom back towards the south, and perhaps it might even end the expansionism that was no doubt occurring in the territories north of the Humber. And so... They spent a year planning for the fight. And they had the initiative. After all, it was King Minnethog who decided when and where to attack. Not only that, but I can't imagine that King Minnethog held back. The degree of effort that went into his war suggests that he wouldn't have wanted to bring any less than the full military might of the Vododini. This would not have been a small detachment. It would have been the entire army of the Vododini quite possibly every man of military age. And they advanced. And the campaign was a complete failure. And when I say complete failure, I really mean it. Despite all their planning, from the records, it appears that the army of the Vododini was slaughtered wholesale, and only the poet Anarin survived. Imagine that. It is entirely possible that this defeat devastated an entire generation of the Vododini. This wasn't just a loss. It was a catastrophe. Maybe Morkant should have kept his blade in its sheath 18 years earlier, and let Urien of Regid have his victory. Because this did not work out well for the Vododini in the long run. As a final nail in the coffin, shortly after that defeat, Aethelfrith, the nephew of King Theodric, united Bernicia and Deira into the new kingdom of Northumbria. This was a terrible development for the northern British. And Aethelfrith wasted no time in wielding his military advantage, and he began a sustained campaign towards the western British, a campaign that his successors would maintain. The trouble would extend into the Scottish territory as well, with Aidan, king of the Scots, being defeated in battle by the Northumbrians at Degsistan, in 603. 
In the end, the northern British advance against the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms was brief, and it was marred with tragedy, similar to the southern experience. And Wales really was becoming the last respite and point of hope for the Brythonic Britons. And from now on, the primary Brythonic resistance would come from there. Unfortunately, even the Welsh territories were getting pressed on their borders. At about 610, we're told of St. Bueno retreating across the River Severn and migrating into Gwyneth. The reason we're told he did this was because there were some new settlers that moved into the valleys of the Dee, the Wye, and the Severn. And those new settlers were speaking a pagan language. And he was having none of that, so he legged it. So, that tells us a couple things. First, it gives us another bit of evidence showing that the Mercians were fully establishing themselves and expanding their holdings. But second, it reinforces what we've seen elsewhere. That this is not a simple story of violent expansionism. Rather, in addition to the military conflicts that we've seen between the kingdoms, there are Britons who are packing up and leaving rather than mixing with the pagan peoples from the east. And those who couldn't or wouldn't leave seem to be integrating. This isn't a story of genocide. It isn't black and white. It was personal. And the way one person or family reacted to the changing culture in Eastern Britain could be very different to how someone else did. Though, the 7th century was a hard one for the Britons. Even when they tried to develop friendly relations with the Anglo-Saxon nobility, it didn't seem to go all that well. Case in point was what happened in the early 600s. Edwin, a Northumbrian noble, was on the run from a bloodthirsty rival by the name of King Aethelfrith, nephew of King Theodric. And the nobility of Gwyneth welcomed Edwin in and accepted him as a foster son. Now that inevitably led to conflict with Aethelfrith. And so in 615 or 616, King Aethelfrith of Northumbria gathered his warbands and marched all the way to the waters of the west in his campaign to subdue Poes. And there, he met King Seleph of Poes and defeated him. He might have also defeated the men of Gwyneth, but it is hard to say from the records that we have. But the thing is that this is more than a simple story of Edwin's history and the troubles that he carried with him. And for the Welsh, this was more than a simple defeat of the king and warbands of Poes. It actually changed the landscape of Welsh history for a very specific and horrifying reason. At this battle, when Aethelfrith learned that the Christian monks gathered at a nearby monastery and prayed for a British victory, he ordered their deaths before advancing on the army of Poes. The records tell us that over a thousand monks were killed on his order. If true, that is an astoundingly brutal massacre. It's very difficult to get a clear and accurate population count from this period. In fact, I would wager that it's impossible without a time machine. But based upon the rough attempts made by scholars, Aethelfrith might have executed between 1% and 3% of the entire population of Wales. That's between 1% and 3 out of every 100 people living in Wales. For scale, that would be like if someone defeated America in battle and then killed everyone in New York City. That's roughly what we're talking about in terms of impact on the population. And it gets even worse when you consider the size of the religious community of Wales and what the death of over a thousand monks would have meant to that population. 
The religious community was also the intellectual community of Wales. The monks were the people who knew how to read and write. Their communities were where people, affluent and lucky enough to be admitted, could learn how to read and write themselves. And now, assuming that the records are accurate, around 1,200 of them were executed for daring to pray against Aethelfrith. I can't overstate how terrible that would have been for the intellectual and religious development of Wales. And the hits kept on coming. Two years later, Edwin, that exiled noble that Aethelfrith was trying to kill, was now on the throne of Northumbria. And he immediately marshaled his forces and attacked the British kingdom of Almet and defeated it. And their king, Cheritich, was driven from his throne. Northumbria was expanding and it was annexing their British neighbors. Like their southern cousins, the northern English were moving west, and any kindness that Edwin may have felt for Gwyneth apparently did not extend to all other British kingdoms. And that's something that I want to make sure I really make clear, so I'm going to say it again. Our modern views of ethnicity are exactly that. Modern. We cannot assume that Edwin sought Elmet and Gwyneth as part of the same general ethnic grouping. Not only that, but relationships between kings and kingdoms was personal, meaning that alliances and links between kingdoms could vanish the moment a particular king died. And we saw that happen in 625, when King Cadfan of Gwyneth died. Now, we read on his epitaph, that he was, quote, the wisest and most renowned of all kings, end quote. However, we're forced to question whether or not he really was all that wise, considering the help that he provided Edwin. Because Edwin was not all that great for the Northern Welsh. Not long after King Cadfan's body was cold, King Edwin of Northumbria marched upon Gwyneth and attacked his foster brother, King Cabwathlin, son of Cadfan and he besieged him at Innes Glanuach, also known as Puffin Island. The Northumbrians were now in full swing, and were looking to establish their dominion over not just northern England, but also northern Wales. And why not? While we have a sense of the two regions being ethnically and politically divided between England and Wales, at the time, it was just another stretch of land. A stretch of land that, apparently, Edwin wanted. Meanwhile, in the south, the fight to control the Severn Sea continued. As you may remember from the last episode, the West Saxons were pushing deep into the west and had cut the Cornish off from Wales by land and had every reason to want to prevent their access to the sea as well. Thereby, they would fully isolate them from one another. Well, in 630, the West Saxons gathered an invasion force and pressed into Gwent clearly looking to carry out that vision. However, tradition tells us that the men of Gwent defeated their advances and defended their southern shoreline, ensuring that Gwent and Glywysing would remain Welsh. The victory was a substantial one in Welsh history because it halted West Saxon expansionism into the land that would become Wales. Meanwhile, the Cornish continued to fiercely defend their lands, and they would do such a good job that Cornwall would remain independent until at least 878, and wouldn't be absorbed by Wessex until 950. But while the West Saxons were discovering that they wouldn't be able to annex Gwent quite as easily as some of the other territories of the Severn Valley, up north, 
something significant was happening. Two years had passed since King Cadwallon of Gwyneth was besieged and forced to submit to his foster brother, King Edwin of Northumbria. And Cadwallon had used those two years well. He marshaled a large force, advanced into Northumbria, and met King Edwin in battle. Longtime listeners will remember this as the Battle of Hatfield Chase. And the battle itself was covered in detail in episode 111, What Comes Around Goes Around. The important thing for right now is that King Edwin had the full strength of Northumbria behind him, the forces of both the Era and Bernicia. He was battle-hardened. He and his warbands had repeatedly proven their skill in war and his kingdom dwarfed Cadwallon's kingdom of Gwyneth. Not only that, but the British kingdoms had not fared so well against the Northumbrians as of late. Like many of her neighbors, Gwyneth had learned firsthand of Northumbria's power. And those losses, including the recent loss Cadwallon suffered only two years earlier, had also likely weakened the British warbands. Yet here we see King Cadwallon on the offensive, Gwyneth wasn't fighting a defensive war like the Britons had done so many times before. Instead, the warbands were advancing. Capwathlin must have looked like King Urien of Regid Reborn, advancing into the Eastern Kingdoms and taking the fight directly to their doorstep. This was an incredibly brave move given their relative positions. Edwin was a Bretwalda. He was incredibly powerful in his own right. Though... Cadwallon had an ace up his sleeve. He wasn't fighting alone. He had Penda of Mercia with him as an ally. This alliance is another example of what we've been talking about in this episode. That our modern concepts of ethnicity aren't always relevant or helpful in our understanding of the past. While Edwin and Penda likely spoke the same language, that didn't mean that they would have seen themselves as part of some English nation or even the same ethnic group. Even if we set aside the fact that the border people seemed like they were their own thing, it still is unlikely that the two men would have felt like they were part of the same team. Edwin was the Eren, and Penda was Mercian. There simply wasn't an England, and there were plenty of reasons to get into a fight. Now, some people like to claim that religion was a factor, and that Penda was lashing out at Edwin because he recently converted. But honestly, I think that's ridiculous. It isn't that religion wasn't important. It was in certain circumstances. I just don't see it being a factor here. After all, Cap Wathlin was a Christian just like Edwin. Not only that, but Penda's own daughters were Christian. Penda never showed overt hostility towards Christians on the basis of their religion. He really didn't seem to care about religion whatsoever. Similarly, Capwathlin doesn't appear to have had any misgivings about working with a Mercian, nor did he worry about Penda's religion. This was an Anglo-Saxon pagan allying with a Christian Briton to fight a Christian Anglo-Saxon. And it seems to me that the two men worked together for a very simple reason. It was politically advantageous. King Edwin was tyrannical, and he was a danger to the kingdoms that were near to him. God family background, language, favorite color, none of these things mattered. What mattered was the politics of the thing. Edwin needed to be defeated. And so, in 632, he was. 
With Edwin dead, King Cadwallon now directly ruled over Northumbria. This was a major shift in the tides of battle. For the people of the time who were aware of history and who resented the spread of Anglo-Saxon culture, it very well might have felt like the repeat of Mount Baden, where the Britons defeated the Anglo-Saxon host and stopped their spread for a generation. And we're told by the Anglo-Saxon sources that, following this victory, King Capwathlin ruled his new lands with an iron fist, and that the people of Northumbria suffered greatly. In response, a noble named Osric declared himself Edwin's successor, and raised an army to fight Capwathlin. But he was killed in battle, along with his entire army. Then Ainfrith, son of Aethelfrith, arrived in Northumbria, and tried to negotiate a peace with King Cadwathlin. Which was kind of foolish, to be honest, because Ainfrith didn't have an army, or any real standing to negotiate whatsoever. All he had going for him was the fact that his dad was a king before Edwin and Raidwald killed him. So, that didn't go too well, and Ainfrith was put to death. At that point, I think it was clear that Cadwathlin was supreme in the north. And the speed in which Capwathlin dealt with the English kings, and would-be kings, led Bede to wring his hands and claim that Capwathlin wanted to exterminate the English. That might seem a bit histrionic for good old Bede. But actually, dislodging English culture might have actually been possible back then. This was still early in their history, and they weren't nearly as dominant as they would later become. But the British resurgence was not to last. Oswald, son of Aethelfrith, who had been hiding out with the Irish and the Picts, returned with an army and killed King Capwathlin at the Battle of Heaven Field. You can hear a full account of that on episode 112, The Battle of Heaven Field. This was catastrophic for British ambitions in the East. The possibility for British dominance in the East was effectively over. Some hopes might have been pinned on Capwathlin's son, Cadwallader. But unfortunately, those hopes never panned out, and when the Annals Cambrai recorded his death, the author Abruti Tiwisogion added, quote, And from that time onwards, the Britons lost the crown of the kingdom, and the Saxons won it, end quote. The death of Cadwallon and the failure of Cadwallader to realize his father's goals was quite the blow to the possibility of a Brythonic East. At about 635, so probably the following year, though these dates are soupy, it looks like Regid, the kingdom that was powerful enough to push Theodoric's son of Ida to the very edges of his own lands just 60 years earlier, was annexed by Northumbria. Interestingly, the annexation was possibly arranged through the marriage of Oswiu, son of Aethelfrith, to Rianfelt, the great-granddaughter of King Urien meaning that the great-granddaughter of Urien, who fought the sons of Ida, was marrying a great-grandson of Ida. But honestly, that was probably a smart political move, because the British kingdoms of the north were collapsing quickly, and Northumbria was capitalizing on the opportunity. In 638, they captured Edinburgh, bringing an end to the kingdom of the Vododini. Again, Morkant probably should have kept his knife in his sheath. And with the fall of the Vododini, Strathclyde was now the only Brythonic kingdom to remain in the north. Meanwhile, in the Midlands, Capwathlin's old ally, Penda, was still active. 
And in 641, he killed King Oswald of Northumbria and displayed him on whale stangs. Though, if you thought this was an indication of mercy and revenge for what Northumbria had recently done to the British kingdoms, think again. This appears to have been pure politics, and if Penda was close to King Cabwathlin of Gwyneth, it doesn't appear to have stretched out to any other British kingdoms. I say that because on the following year, 642, we're told of the conquest and destruction of Penguern, the capital of Powys, and it was carried out by the Mercians. The only record of this loss comes from 200 years later, but the poems that commemorate the loss are dripping with anguish and speak of Princess Helath's sorrow as she saw the destruction of the capital and heard of the death of her brother, Kinthalen. This loss was a terrible one for Wales, because by taking that portion of the uplands of Wales, they severed the agricultural links that flowed between the upper and lower lands. Though it wasn't as if the people of Powys were just going to abandon those lands, and we see evidence of repeated attempts to retake them over the next 80 years. It was so bad, in fact, that the Mercians under Aethelbald eventually constructed Watts Dyke. But it can't be denied that the British kingdoms were losing ground. Fast. And next time, we're going to take our first step in tying these threads together, and we will combine the story of Scotland with the story of Wales into a Celt cast that will bring the story of both regions up to the point where we are now in the main show. All right, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And if you want to get involved, you can join any of our social networks, and we get a lot. Uh, and you can find links to all of those at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. All right, thanks for listening. Hey!